New York is a city that has pretty much everything. But taking it all in, well, that could be exhausting, not to mention take a lifetime. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Our guests on this edition of Cityscape each have a story about trying to take in some of the everything the Big Apple has to offer. And for our first guest, it's the people. Artist Jason Poland is on a mission to draw every person in New York. In fact, he recently put out a book that includes a good number of his sketches. Jason, thanks so much for coming into the studio. Thank you for having me. So you've been on a mission, you're still on this mission, to draw every person in New York City? Yes, yes. What inspired you to do this? I Well, I started in 2008, and I had done a couple related projects where I had drawn kind of all-encompassing things, but they were more doable things. Like um, I drew every piece of art in the Museum of Modern Art, and I did a project called um, An Entire Bag of Popcorn, where I popped a whole bag of popcorn and I drew everything, because I, I like this idea of kind of collecting things. And then this project, I had the idea, um, I thought of the title first, Every Person in New York, because I like projects that um, where I can interact with a lot of people. The idea was I would do it, and it would just kind of be a forever project. Like I would work on it while I was on the train or in restaurants or all over the place, and then I would post it on um, a blog so people could kind of follow along. So it wasn't, it wasn't just I have to finish. It was hopefully we can get enjoyment along the way. So when you say the other projects were doable, there was an end there, right? There's only so many objects at the museum, yeah. right? There's yeah. only so many kernels of popcorn. There. Right. The popcorn, I, I ended up making it a little book, and I like people being able to hold kind of these collections, like the Museum of Modern Arts collection. And the popcorn one, it was really fun. I popped the bag of popcorn, and I made a pile of all the popcorn, and then I put it in front of me, the individual kernel, as I drew it, and then I would move it to the other side. So one side would get smaller, and the other side got bigger. So it was a really kind of pleasing thing to do, where I could feel like I was really accomplishing it. And this one is a little bit different, because it's just forever. And I know I'm not going to finish it. So I've kind of like... People are coming and going all the time. Right. And I even draw people that aren't New Yorkers. So it's, it's kind of just an infinity kind of project. So how frequently are you sketching people? Uh, I, I, every day. If I'm in New York, I'm drawing people. So if I'm on a train and I see, I don't know, maybe a little kid leaning on his mom a certain way or, or something, it'll catch my attention and I'll, I'll want to draw that. What's your background? Are you an artist, a trained artist? Yeah, I went to the University of Michigan and I studied drawing and painting and anthropology. So I did a dual degree there. And I've always drawn, so I've um, often my projects are somewhat drawing related, usually. And I moved here right after I finished school in the middle of 2004. Now, that said, I understand that you drew every single student at your art school? Oh, yeah. I did a project, I think it was called I Want to Know All of You. And I was really into the artist Damien Hurst. He was really big into titles. And when I was into... in I was really into him kind of near the end of high school and in college and I also really liked titles of things like I would usually think of the title of a project first and so I think I was a senior in college and I had the idea I want to know all of you where I drew everybody in the art school that I um that I knew and then the people that I didn't know I would draw them and put their name on the bottom and often they didn't probably didn't look anything like them because I didn't know who they were and then my piece in the show was all of these drawings. And if the drawing sold, they were all for sale for $10 a piece. And if the drawing sold, 
the person whose portrait it was got the money. It was a really fun project because I did get to interact with a lot of people that I didn't wouldn't have had that interaction before. The star paths hadn't crossed before. So, so it, it seems that you also have this obsession with every every I person did. in New York, I like everyone, every things. colonel. Yeah, I like. Um, I guess I like collecting things too, like comic books or baseball cards, and a lot of it is having sets, and I really like that. You having, want all of them? Yes, all of them. <laughs> So how many people in New York have you drawn since you started this in 2008? The number is a little rough, but it's, I think it's approaching like 40,000. Because a lot of them, as you can see in the book, there are a lot of very quick portraits. And a lot of them are, um, if I'm drawing a crowd of people, I usually try to count the person if I see them and I would be able to recognize their face a little bit later that day. But the number is a bit rough. In some of your sketches, people are missing a head, they're missing an arm, maybe they have more than two limbs, you know, two more than two arms, more than two legs. What's going on there? I I have this rule where I have to be looking at the person while I'm drawing them. And if people are moving, sometimes I'll do the drawing and I won't get to a leg. So they'll end up only having one leg or um, I'll be drawing them from behind. So I'm only getting the back of their head or they're jogging. So they have extra legs because... If I look up and look down and look up again, they're in a totally different position. So um, I think that's why a lot of them look a little, maybe a little crazy. You also have sketched your fair share of celebrities. Yeah, I I think I, I don't know if it's an obsession, but I, re- I like famous people and I'm excited when I see them. And that's another thing that kind of gets my attention. Ooh, I should draw that person. Or... So do you just stumble upon them on a train or in a restaurant? Often, yeah. I um. I mean, I'll go to readings and things. So if I'll see like Robert Crumb, Art Spiegelman or different artists or writers doing a signing or a talk somewhere, I'll go to that and I'll draw them there. But often it's just, it's funny, often the celebrity drawings are them from the back because I'll see them and I'll walk past them and then I'll look back and draw them. And um, yeah, it's usually, usually random. So who have you drawn from the back? Uh, I drew a pretty funny picture of Jerry Seinfeld, and I was in, it's called the Burger Joint. Do you know that restaurant? It's in the La Parker Meridian Hotel on okay. 56th or 57th. And um, I was in there with a friend, and it's a pretty little place, and I looked, and Jerry Seinfeld walked in, and I was pretty excited to see him. But it's a very quick drawing, and he's kind of scratching his head. It just looks pretty ridiculous, because I, I don't like when people notice me drawing either. It makes me kind of nervous, so... um. Sometimes that's why those drawings are really quick, because I don't want to make other people nervous. Yeah, I don't know who else I've drawn from from the back. Marina Abramovich, an artist I really like. I was just looking at the drawing of her I did. A bunch of people. I must say, no offense here, but your Katie Couric... Is it terrible? It's kind of terrible. I, <laughs> I saw her... Well, here's a funny story about that one. I think I saw her at an art fair, the Armory Art Fair... And she was walking towards me, and it was one of those ones where I didn't want her to notice me. So I did a really quick, it was bad. But I think, I don't know if it was right before that or right after that, I saw Calvin Klein, Mm -hmm. and I asked him for his autograph, because sometimes I like to have an interaction with a celebrity to see if they're nice. And he said, and I I also have this thing about Calvin Klein, because I really like the movie Back to the Future, and um, Michael J. Fox's character it's kind of I think they refer to him as Calvin Klein because his underwear says Calvin Klein. Uh-huh. And um so I just have this funny affinity to Calvin Klein and I wanted his autograph and I asked and he said, Oh no, I gotta run. 
And then he slowly walked away. So I had this <laughs> moment where I, I, he was just slowly. So I drew him slowly walking away from me, but feeling a little bit defeated. But still, I don't know. I'm glad I got to draw him. Have people recognized themselves in yeah. your sketches and then notified you? Yeah, I got an interesting email once. I was walking on, I think it was Crosby Street, and I saw there was a fo- an Annie Leibovitz photo shoot happening. And I was so excited because I thought that was just a really cool thing to see. To see. And she was um, photographing all different interesting people like Ariana Huffington and I think Mayor Bloomberg might have been there. And... Um, I saw somebody was holding a fog machine under a car. So the fog was coming out at a certain angle, I guess, that Annie Leibovitz wanted. And so I drew that person because I thought that was interesting. And that person emailed me that they saw that I was the person holding that fog machine. So I will get emails every once in a while that I always I always love that because um, it's kind of a nice way of connecting kind of on, on a different level, I guess. Now, how many sketches are in this book? Well, there's 408 pages and I'd, I'd say it's like 35,000 people. It's pretty, it's, I mean, like that number, like I was saying is a little rough, but it's a lot. And it's chronological. You start in 2008 and yep. you continue from there. Yeah. And it's, um, I, I rescanned everything for the book and it was interesting and sometimes a little painful seeing some of those really early drawings and thinking, I guess it is good that it was a little painful to see those and hopefully I've improved and I hope I don't look back in six or seven years and think, oh man, those ones in 2014 were terrible. But I, uh, yeah, we thought chronological would be the best way to organize things. Which are you most impressed with? The drawings, the really quick ones, I think are better than some t- than the ones I spent a lot of time on because I won't be thinking about it very much. Like, I'll just need to get it done really quickly. But I find if I'm doing a portrait of somebody, if somebody asks me to draw them, that never comes out well. I did a drawing of Kristen Wiig that I was pretty excited about. That's really bad. There's a Donald Trump drawing that is particularly bad, but I was trying to get, um, I thought it would be funny if he used it as his campaign logo, because it's a pretty (laughs) ridiculous drawing. What, if anything, have you learned about people in New York by sketching them? There are kind of obvious things that I just don't think I had ever thought about before. Just, um, I don't know, just the speed people move or how they look at things. I like drawing people at the Museum of Modern Art a lot, and it's just interesting seeing how fast or slow people will spend with in certain rooms or looking at certain pieces of artwork or um, I, I feel like not to brag, but I've gotten a better sense of when people are about to move about to like get up from a meal or about to, and not just, <laughs> not just if they're packing up their backpack, but I can kind of, Oh, this person's about to stand up. And um, so just obvious things like that and clothes, people wear different clothes and different, different kinds of clothes in different parts of the city. And, People in Grand Central are moving faster than people in the library. Just kind of silly, obvious things, but things that I hadn't really thought about before doing this. Is there anybody who you really want to bump into so you can sketch them in person? I'd love to draw the president. I don't know. I mean, I have weird... I'm I'm a fan of different artists, so I'm always excited to run into... There's this graffiti artist named Futura who um, I drew the other day, and he was painting a mural on Houston, so I was excited to see him and... I've been pretty lucky. I've drawn a lot of people that I I really like. As you said, this is a project that pretty much 
can never, will never be finished. Do you plan to just continue this while you're here in New York? Yeah, for as long, long as I'm here, is? I'll be working on it. I, I don't know. I mean, even if I got to eight million, eight point whatever the population is, eight point right. three million, I, I wouldn't think I was done. Yeah, I'm never gonna, never gonna be done. Jason Poland, thank you so much for coming. Thank in. you for having me. That was Jason Poland. His book, Every Person in New York, is out now from Chronicle Books. You can also find his drawings online at everypersoninnewyork.blogspot.com. Did you know that every block in the Big Apple adds up to over 6,000 miles? That's a round trip across the United States. Our next guest has walked them all, every block, and is doing it again. He chronicles his first journey in a book called The New York Nobody Knows. Cityscape producer Taylor Nolk caught up with sociologist and CUNY professor Bill Helmreich on the streets of the Bronx. Hi, Bill. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. What can you tell us about the neighborhood we're in? Well, what I can tell you is that this is a neighborhood that used to be more Irish and Jewish and Italian, and it is now. uh, This area is um, technically in the South Bronx. It's 167th Street. We're on the west side of the concourse, so I would say it becomes the West Bronx really on the other side of Jerome Avenue, but this is a sort of a gray area. It's west and south. And it has become, in recent years, as you can see, it's a, uh, a Hispanic neighborhood. Here, let's go in and talk to this guy. Sure. Hello. You from Yemen? Mauritania. Where? Mauritania. That's, that's a new one. Mauritania. You see, and I thought all the bodegas were owned by Yemenis. And you are Mauritania. Most is Yemen. But uh, how's the neighborhood? Is it safe? Yeah, it's good. No danger. No bang bang robberies. No, no. (laughs) How long are you here? Uh, Four months. Four months? Yeah. Wow. You know English very. Four months in story. In America, two years. In America, even so, two years to know English? It's great. I was born in Switzerland, and I also did not speak English. Now I know English. A little bit. What language do you speak? Arabic. Only Arabic. Okay. Well, I let you go back to your business. Okay. Thank Take you so care. Much. See, this is my method. I don't, I don't tell people what I'm doing, what I'm writing. Uh, I just go in and start talking to them, and then before they know it, they're in the interview. This way, it's more natural, more spontaneous. I have no idea what I'm going to ask somebody when I see them. It doesn't really matter. So you're finding the real humans of New York, kind of like the photographer. I know him. I know him. Brandon Stanton. And in, he's finding the humans. He only has a caption, though, on the things. I'm trying to engage them in complete conversations. Uh, there's so much to talk about here. Most of the people who run the bodegas today are Yemenis, even in Hispanic neighborhoods. They, they're taking it over from the Dominicans and the Puerto Ricans. And before that, it was the Koreans. We had problems in the 1980s because the Koreans... Uh, we're not treating, uh, according to the complaints, of the uh, African Americans with respect in their neighborhoods, and maybe it was so. But uh, today, it's a Yemeni-run uh, business, primarily. You wrote the book "The New York Nobody Knows" based on the first time you walked every block in the city. What was that like? That trek, you know. Let me uh, backtrack a little bit. My interest in New York was kindled by my father who took me on walks all the time. 
And uh, every weekend we would play a game called Last Stop, and we'd go to the last stop on the subway, and then we would walk around the neighborhood for a while. And that was how I learned to love and know New York. We would go to Throck's Neck in the Bronx, and I would see people fishing. And I would see fish come out. And I was only seven years old. And Jesus, I thought that fish came out of a fish tank in a store. I didn't think about the original fish, where it was. And then I learned the streets, the neighborhoods of the city. One time we were in Brooklyn, my father poked his head into a bar and everybody scattered. I have no idea why. They must have thought he was a detective or something like that. Then I went out to Canarsie in Brooklyn where my teacher had threatened to send us if we didn't behave. And it looked like a swamp at that time. It, was, it, didn't look like, it looked like a place where you would be sent for punishment. Uh, and, uh, of course, today it's all built up. It's a different story. So I went and I taught a course in New York City for 40 years until one day the chairman of my department at the Graduate Center, CUNY Graduate I teach at CUNY Graduate Center and at City College of New York. I'm in the sociology department. My uh, chairman said, you know, you've been teaching a course in New York for so many years, for 40 years. Why don't you write a book about it? And, you know, when I looked at my syllabus, which had all the books, I realized there is no book. Uh, about walking New York City. Ed Koch, when I interviewed him later on, I interviewed the mayors, Koch, Giuliani, Bloomberg, Dinkins. Ed Koch said to me, you know, I think you're the first guy to ever walk the whole city of New York and write a book about it. And I guess he was right. But when I, I first conceived of the idea, I thought I would pick 20 representative streets of the city and that, and that uh, they would become the book. The problem was... How do you decide in a city with 121,000 blocks what 20 streets are going to be representative? Is 125th more worthy than 126th to 124th? I reluctantly concluded, though maybe not so reluctantly, that I would have to walk the entire city. Now, how do you walk a whole city? You walk it like you climb a mountain, one block at a time. Okay, so it took you four years to walk every block the first time. How are you planning it out now? Well, the difference is that when I wrote the first book, it was organized topically according to chapters called Community, Ethnicity, Immigration, uh, Spaces, Gentrification. But this time they decided that this book worked so well because it was about the New York that nobody knew. It was about the church that did exorcisms on Grand Avenue on 181st Street in the Bronx. It was about the man who, who left the house to his um, children and grandchildren and they made it into a, they kept the grocery store sign on long after it had ceased being a grocery store when it was just one of another of many brownstones on a block on 8th Street in Gowanus. They said, gee, this could be a very good selling book as a guidebook for people walking New York. So they said, why don't you do the five boroughs by neighborhood instead of doing it by topic, gentrification and ethnicity, just do it by neighborhood. 95% of the Brooklyn book does not draw on anything that I said about Brooklyn in the first book. It's all new stuff. Why? Because New York is always changing. It's the city that keeps giving. It's the world's greatest outdoor museum. And so uh, um, I mapped it out neighborhood by neighborhood. In other words, I had a map, and as I walked the streets, I took a yellow marker and crossed off where I had walked so that I would know where to start again. And I just walked it systematically, every single neighborhood, Park Slope, Cobble Hill, Canarsie, Brownsville, East New York, Flatlands, Flatbush, Green Park, you name it. So these books can be a time capsule, right? 
Have you noticed any changes since the first book? Because these uh, books are designed to, uh, to entice the, the reader to become a walker, and they're going to have apps, all kinds of apps with it and everything to make that possible, uh, what, what, we're, what I try to focus on is things that are not ephemeral, things that are not temporary. You know, wall graffiti changes. The world's greatest uh, graffiti, in my opinion, graffiti art, is in Brooklyn's Bushwick and East Williamsburg sections. Now, the exhibits will change, but the graffiti will still be there. It'll be other artwork. So I describe what it is, and you can have something similar. The way you collect the stories from all kinds of New Yorkers in different neighborhoods, you're really disproving this idea that New Yorkers are standoffish. Not standoffish at all. Do you know that in doing hundreds of interviews around the city, ain't nobody refused to talk to me. I had nobody refused to talk. First of all, they started talking to me right away. You can talk to anybody you want to talk to. You're not going to have any problem. The main thing is don't have an attitude. You see, the street is a place that is alive. You gotta, you gotta work it. You gotta talk to the people. You gotta be. I don't tell people who are shy and retiring to do this kind of research, you know, because it's not going to work. If you're not ready to talk to people, total strangers, you can't do this. Bill, it was a pleasure talking Thank with you. Very you. much. Thank you. That was CUNY professor Bill Helmreich. His book, The New York Nobody Knows, is available from Princeton University Press. He talked with Cityscape producer Taylor Nolk. Walk a few blocks in New York City, and you're bound to come across a pizza joint. But did you ever have the urge to stop to try a slice in every one of them? Our next guest did. In August 2009, Colin Hagendorf set out to try every regular slice of pizza in Manhattan. Hundreds of slices later, he's out with a book called The Slice Harvester, a memoir in pizza. Colin joins me now on the phone. Colin, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you for having me. So back in 2009, you started the blog with the goal of reviewing a plain slice of pizza from every pizzeria in Manhattan. What every is, single one. Every single one. What inspired you to do that? I was absolutely appalled that no one had done it before. Like, I, I was joking around about it with a friend of mine, and we went to go look it up. because We were sure. Why wouldn't someone have done that? It's such a simple, important thing. And we saw that it hadn't happened, and I was just, I was so angry by that. You know, as a punk, I have a sense of civic, civic obligation, you know, a sense of responsibility in my community. You know, there's an old rule in the squat, right? If you live in squats, which I never did, but I hung out in some, that if you step on a broken step, once you notice that the step is broken and you don't fix it, it becomes your responsibility. And it's like seeing that no one had reviewed all the pizza it was like I was stepping on a broken step. You know what I mean? I noticed that, and it became my responsibility to fix the broken step. And so that's what I did. So did you indeed have a slice of pizza from every pizzeria in Manhattan? Hard to say, because, I mean, it depends how you gauge it, right? I started, it took me two and a half years. And what I would do is I would, uh, I would cut out segments of the city as I finished them. So I, started, I went from north to south. Once I ate everything above 125th Street, say, I didn't go back there two and a half years later when I was eating at Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure pizza pizzerias had opened up, you know, as it took me that time to get through the whole city. But I would say that I ate at every one because kind of like as I, as I made my way through, you know, I, I ate at every one that I passed. So for you, what was the final count then? How many? Uh, 373. 373. 
Did you ever get sick of pizza during this time? No, no, I never will. You never will, huh? Uh Uh-uh. No, it's not possible. What makes for a good slice of pizza? So there's like, there's stuff you can quantify, right? Uh, Like uh, the crust needs to be thin enough that it is not dominating the slice. It shouldn't be big and puffy. It should be thin and crisp on the bottom, but a little soft on top. The sauce needs to be delicious, spiced right, but not too sweet, not too salty. Should be a little bit of garlic, but not too much, you know. It's all about that kind of uh, Goldilocks uh, rule, you know. And then the cheese, obviously, you don't want it to be, for a New York slice, you don't want some fresh mozzarella, right? You want it to be some kind of processed cheese, but um, you don't want it to be really crappy cheese, you know what I mean? You need it to be all right cheese. You need good ingredients. Good ingredients, and they need to be balanced. The ratios need to be good. And then there's the intangible thing, which I like to say. It's like when you're driving and just the right song for your mood comes on Hot 97. It's just like, yeah, that's right. I run New York. You know what I mean? And it's like moments like that where the way the song sounds, and my my emotional relationship with that song from my youth and what have you, all this stuff is is playing up. But like, there's also a certain magic in the world when everything everything coalesces just right and everything feels like it fits in place. And that's what a good slice of pizza has. You can't have a good pizzeria that's strictly interested in bottom lines and like you know when you get to a pizza shop that's clearly being run from a excel spreadsheet about the numbers and the book and there's not much love involved you don't you're not going to get a good slice because there's no magic in the numbers in the book that said does it matter how much a slice of pizza cost can a 99 cent slice be just as good as a 250 slice no because you can't afford the ingredients and you can't pay the people that are making it enough for them to not be miserable a miserable person is not going to make a good slice of pizza. If your workers are getting paid a piss-poor wage and they can't, they can't even afford to buy lunch off of the, the money they're making at work because you've got to keep the numbers too low, then this pizza is not going to be good. What's your favorite pizza place in New York City or in Manhattan, I should say? My favorite Manhattan slice is uh, definitely Pizza Suprema on, uh, on 31st Street or on 8th Avenue just south of 31st Street. So while you were on this pizza-tasting adventure, fair to say your life was falling apart? No, but no? I was, I mean, I was, I was a mess. I think it's like, it'd be, an, it'd be hyperbolic to say my life was falling apart. So what you're getting at is that I, I quit drinking while I was eating pizza, and I write pretty transparently about my alcoholism um, in, the, in the book. And, but I think what's important about it is that, um, what's important about my, my alcoholism in particular as compared to other like narratives about recovery and sobriety is that it could have gone on like that for a bunch more years. Um, it was like pretty mundane. You know what I mean? Like the banality of my substance abuse was that I could have persisted. It was, it was a bummer and my life kind of stunk, but I wouldn't say it was falling apart. It just, it just stuck and it was not a good way to live. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I was lucky enough to realize that before it actually fell apart. My point in writing about that was that people can, maybe other people that are having similar issues can see, okay, you don't need to have this uh, intense, like everything, you know, when everyone stops talking to you and you hit bottom and you're standing on the ledge and you got to just get sober or jump off. You know, it's like sometimes it's a lot more mundane than that. And sometimes addiction and recovery is a lot simpler than that. That doesn't mean it's not just as hard to quit. The point is that it would have just slowly turned me into a boring jerk. Mm-hmm if I had kept drinking. So how did the focus of this project help you through that? Drinking was a lot about 
self-medicating social anxiety. I like to socialize. I'm a social person. I could talk to people. I like to meet new people. I like to be in, in big social settings, but I get a little nervous. And so drinking for me was a way to deal with that and to kind of be able to let loose a little bit in ways that I didn't, I didn't know how. You know, I, I'm, I'm a New York Jew. I'm a little uptight. Part of what eating the pizza did, especially because I did it in this way that was like community-oriented and about um, interacting with people that I knew and I liked, was that it gave me an alternate structure for hanging out and for getting my socializing in. I'm part of a community of people that travel around the country and doing art and all kinds of stuff. Like, you know, being punk, that's what we do. You get in a van and you go show your photographs around uh, the country or you go, you play, you play music or whatever. I wasn't able when I first quit drinking to disentangle the going to the show from drinking a 40 at the show. And so I was able to say, Hey, you know, I'm glad to see that y'all are in town. Maybe instead of, um, instead of me coming to the show, you guys want to come some afternoon and eat pizza with me for this project that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And so it gave me kind of an alternate structure to still be able to get my socializing in, but also, and also just gave me something to focus on. You know, I had something that I had to do and it was important. All right, Colin, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. That was Colin Hagendorf. His book, Slice Harvester, A Memoir in Pizza, is available from Simon & Schuster. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.